Hi everyone, this is FIA Goes PC. So this is the very first ever episode that uh, we're, we're coming to you from the UK right now. And yeah, so I'm sitting here with Winifred Mock, the producer of the show. Say hello. Hi everyone. <laughs> and I'm your host, Danny Hale, aka Rebel Zen. She's a bit subdued tonight. It's, uh, it's the evening and when the sun is down, wind falls asleep almost rapidly. So I'm going to do my best to keep her awake, keep her entertained, keep you entertained and keep everything on point. To begin the journey, let me explain a little bit about the, uh, the format of this. It's very unique in a sense because this um, podcast is really designed as I would say the little sister to the big brother, Project FIA which is a kind of an audience participation show. I'll use the term reality TV immensely loosely. Um, we have a bit of kind of a unique take on what reality should mean, at least what it means to us. So the, the podcast form is a way that we can be a lot more sensible. I say a lot more uh, marginally. Probably so, won't be. Probably won't be any more sensible. Probably hit my head with a mallet or something like that and you won't see it. You'll just hear it, which is fantastic. Um, but yeah, no, the uh, the format of this show is anything from sort of production diary interviews with the cast and crew of the uh, the show for Amazon Prime. Um, anything from that to reviewing things, movies, film, um, film is movies, what am I talking about? Uh, TV <laughs> and everything else uh, that we're kind of connected to or that we're privy to. Um, I I'm a big fan of video games as Win will testify she's often lost me to the pixel world haven't you I'm a big fan of books yeah she's a big fan of books uh, which is like the ancient ancestor of a video game <laughs> when you really think about it it's absolutely not um so yeah we, we're kind of hip and not hip in the same breath I'm, I'm obviously the hip guy right Got I'll, big, I'll just big sit hips. in the corner over here really well, that's not very helpful to people at home. It's a circular room, so she's just confused all of you sitting in the corner. How do you manage that? That's just crazy. Anyway, back on topic. And you can see this is... The, the form is improvised. The show is improvised that we're doing on Amazon. It's a uh, highly ambitious, kind of crazy world. And we're, we're at the secrecy, uh, secrecy stage. I nearly created a word there for you. Secrecy. What's that? No one knows. But we're at the kind of secrecy stage because we're in the final hurdle of pre-production, uh, about a week away from pushing the boat out and uh, switching all the cameras on and filming. And the filming will go from July, that we're currently in, up until Halloween with the final episode accumulating on Halloween, which I can't wait for. I mean, not to wish my life away, right? But so eager for Halloween. Favourite favorite time of the year because uh, I'm a bit weird like that you don't really care for halloween do you well i mean it has a nice atmosphere especially in england because you got like fairs and stuff happening like the mop fair in stratford well, it's the really seasonal love. fall yeah as the americans our, our buddies in america would say seasonal yeah. fall it's the autumn in england well we don't have that in hong kong we just have summer and then slightly cooler slightly cool and then back <laughs> to summer yeah. it's just hot but i mean halloween is something that's very quite recent in hong kong celebration isn't it I mean, the, uh, it's not a big deal, is it, really? Um, we follow the American kind of tradition, just trick-or-treat for the kids. Yeah. If you're in the right kind of neighborhood, but if not, then nothing, really. 
Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I remember being there for it, but there's, there's kind of like street decorations, but it's very underplayed. Ah, oh, but we have street decorations for everything. That's like, true. You know. So back on topic, we talked about Halloween. That's our cutoff point. We're going all the way through the summer into the autumn and Halloween will be the accumulation of not only this, but it will be the end of the first season of Project FIA on Amazon Prime. Yay! Woo! Long way to go. So right here, we're sitting uh, pretty much in a damp and dark cave in England somewhere, right? It's not really a cave, is it? Anyway, so we're sitting here um, and today we kind of, all of this is a mad introduction as, as you can obviously tell um, to things we've got planned in the future and also a bit of about the past. Uh, our past is fun because three years ago we sort of arrived back in the UK after five year absence. Uh, we just made a movie actually, which you will also find on Amazon Prime, Kin Fallen Star. Search for it now, otherwise we will uh, probably hire assassins to come track you down. You should watch it, but don't feel pressured to watch it, even though if you don't watch it, you might end up dead. No pressure, obviously. <laughs> Life is about choice, but sometimes we like to give you no option. Is that right? It's very communist of you. Well, it's, it, you say communist, I say mafia. Whatever, whatever works. Regardless, um, now that we've thrown political correctness out the window of our cave, well, Coast, this is Coast a... have windows, right? <laughs> um, some do, apparently. Anyway, that's a grand design show that I once saw. I don't know if any of you guys... Are we supposed to be PC on this? Because, you know, FIA goes PC. We're meant to be more politically correct. A little more. Uh, a fraction. Like, basically, enough political correction to not get us arrested. Do you see what I'm saying? Because in, this, in, the, in the day job... Slightly different. But here, we've got enough political correction to... Correctness. Correct, correctness. I just corrected your correct... Politically... Well, it's, there's nothing correct about politics. How's that? There's politeness, I suppose, in a political world and realm. Anyway, one heck of a digression there. I obviously can't speak. My teeth aren't fully set yet. Shall I punch you? Yeah, you should punch me. That, that's a uh, cure-all for everything. Um, Set your teeth back in. Or remove them entirely, which is fine. Um, I've completely forgotten where the channel thought. <laughs> okay, so political correctness. There you go. This, th So, yeah, three years ago, we arrived back in the UK. Five-year absence. We'll start again from there. And we just done Kin Star in Hollywood. Spent uh, a good five years travelling between... Los Angeles and Hong Kong, which is actually where we're based, isn't it, Wynn? Mm-hmm. That's home. Yeah, it's home. So we're, well, I'm sort of, it's it's my home from home. This is this is really my home, this cave <laughs> that we're dwelling in. But um, realistically, yeah, it's home from home. Hong Kong is where our company is based. And again, it's a unique, it's a, it's a kind of unique setup because we are pretty much an Asian film production company happens to have first language English and happens to travel outside of Hong Kong to make our projects. Well, we like to be international. Hong Kong's an international city. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's really a case where we go, we travel and we bring back to Hong Kong the riches of our worth, which is so far <laughs> 
accumulated to enough to buy a coffee at Starbucks. I'm only joking, obviously. At least two coffees. Um, but that's the life of artists. And I think what's great about this little journey is that um, we're quite transparent. You'll get the truth from us. And we uh, we have no problem telling you the struggles and the, uh, the rewards that come with making movies or this life of art that we walk, I suppose. So, Kinfall and Star, we, we should talk a little bit about that, you know, uh, self-righteous promotion and all of that. <laughs> well, we did spend a lot of time and life on it, so, yeah. We spent a lot of time and life. And money. Correct. Well, all our money, more or less. Mm-hmm. So, I don't want to go into because obviously in the future people will reference this uh, down the line, but basically if we keep it short and sweet, Kinfall and Star was um, was a highly ambitious um, kind of blueprint, really, like a foundation for what we're about as a production company back in Asia. Because the point really is with Kin to establish a kind of authentic, modern, multi-ethnic narrative, which just by saying sounds like the most unsellable and marketable, boring thing in the universe. <laughs> But actually, it's pretty much the belief, like, if you've actually ever watched animation projects in Japan in the last 20 years, especially, where it's been a, a bit more of a boom worldwide, you'll sort of understand what, what I mean by multi-ethnic fantasy narratives. Because <laughs> the idea is to kind of honour uh, the Japanese animation style and, and bring it to the uh, art form of film. So all the shots... Um, we're elected to do a little bit more um, low-key rather than your big fancy pants cranes and your dolly tracks and all of this um, for two reasons. One, because we can afford big fancy cranes and dolly tracks, <laughs> let's be honest. And two, because the Asian visual um, narrative is usually different. So if you ever see a classic Hong Kong cinema-structured film or uh, Japanese dramas, Korean dramas and things, they're shot more, I would say, intimately, a lot more artistically. And we kind of wanted to honour the style of that too. So no better place in the world then to start our film career in, in the current era in Los Angeles, the hardest place in the world to make film. What was surprising when about making films in Hollywood is how difficult it actually is. Mm -hmm. So do you want to explain to the folks um, the kind of things that we had as an instant problem when we arrived in Hollywood? As a producer, what did you notice? Well, the first thing is, if you have a film crew, everywhere you go, they'll ask for like a film permit. Permits, insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, um, insurance, a minimum of like, I don't know, one or 1.5 million insurance um no matter how small scale you are well basically what it is is we've been making films uh in the uk europe we've also done a few things in asia um and what we always find when we're making films outside of what we run into in los angeles is that most people are kind of willing. Um, they, they understand that if you to film in their cafe or their, their actual restaurant or premises of work or any, any scene, it's a benefit to them, to small businesses, especially because you're actually doing PR work for them. Yeah, they're happy to help. Correct. But what I think we ran into as uh, an instant issue in Los Angeles was 
the fact that there is this permit heavy security, the fact that you need a multi-million insurance scheme policy to just have permission to film, obviously there's all kinds of security risks as well. And everything's basically about money. Um, I mean, even if you rent a place, like uh, one of the places that we looked at, the guy was like, oh, what are you going to do? And we're like, oh, we just want to, you know, film a short scene. And they're like, oh, if you're going to do filming, that's a different rate. Yeah. But I mean, you can kind of understand the, the main difference being that LA is pretty much an industry town. And the industry happens to be the entertainment industry, mm-hmm. unlike Birmingham, which I feel our biggest industry in recent times was chocolate. So Yeah, until it was sold off. <laughs> well, until it was sold to bigger corporate powers, etc. etc. Another conversation for another time. Mm-hmm. But the industry element is is it's kind of a similar thing. A lot of people don't process this, but um when you do move into a town of industry. The entire town sort of works to that industry. Once upon a time, it was a motor industry in, in, in this city. And not unlike Detroit, really. But when that falls to the wayside or gets sold off, that kind of industrial town thing collapses. Whereas Los Angeles industry is predominantly the world's main source of entertainment. And things we found interesting when we got there was, you know, there was a lot of Korean production companies based out of LA that's that blew my mind when you're in in K-Town yeah there's a lot of links well direct links a lot of yeah like a lot of shows management for the South Korean market it literally emanates wasn't there a South Korean radio station as well Uh, South Korean broadcasting radio station headquarters but as I said there was a lot of direct roots from a lot of Korean programs and, and the business side comes directly from Los Angeles I mean, that's a partial side of it. You've also got the uh, Hispanic world, the South American world, Mexico, and there's a lot of links direct from LA. So LA has become pretty much the business side of global film as well, mm-hmm. especially how China's moved in recently. And this is all the kind of stuff that we've watched grow in the past decade. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you rewind a clock and, you know, America is predominantly a domestic market, but obviously now with huge funding coming out of Asia, the landscape's changed quite a lot. And that really is kind of a humbling moment when you realise just how big that industry spreads, really. Mm-hmm. I think what's also interesting, because, you know, talking about filming in L.A., not many people do film in L.A. anymore because, you know, you got tax breaks in certain states or other countries or, you know, I the world's that... largest uh, film studio, uh, soundstage is in China now, so. Yeah, I, I think the uh, the interesting reason that people don't use Los Angeles as a prime location is actually <laughs> the permits. <laughs> it's, it's the things that you've run into. It's the paperwork. Like, literally, it just puts you off, which is kind of a shocker, really. Like, you realize that everyone's kind of flocking there, expecting to sort of, you know, walk into something uh, routine. And that's not to say things aren't filmed. I would say that Los Angeles is actually more of a location for the TV shows that are coming out of America now as opposed to the actual film industry. Right. So it's an interesting one because actually I noticed when we were at uh, the Universal Studios theme park, because we, we always have to dabble, go back to Universal Studios just because we're big kids. Well, I am. Wynn absolutely hates it. She just brings a book. It's research. There you go. It's research. But you'll notice that in the uh, back lot there, there's a lot of current TV shows all the time. 
uh, emanating. Actually, when we were there, CBS at the time, which is now super famous because it's it's near the um, farmers market in the Grove, and it's now become super famous with James Corden who's using the streets outside. And this happened. I swear to God, when like we leave LA and every British anyone turns up. You know, one of my football heroes, Steven Gerrard, turns up. Then mm. James Corden turns up. Then, you know, before you know it, everyone's in, in LA. It's almost like we're all running out there like it was southern Spain in the 80s. <laughs> it's madness. Mass exodus to Los Angeles, folks. Yeah. So, the British invasion's currently happy. It's uh, it's thriving. <laughs> and we got out. We got out. We came back here to this. There's no British people left. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> they're, all in, they're all in the industry. So yeah, like uh, LA, um, fascinating place. Uh, obviously, when you say it's the center of the entertainment universe, of course that's a given. But when you actually <laughs> when you actually turn up there with this humble and pro- probably insane actually idea to make a film, you do walk into kind of everything you don't expect. But the saving grace, the on the flip side of everything. There's a hell of a lot of people to work with, isn't there? You mm-hmm. can cast. There's always positivity in the. Well, in it's the easy industry. to find talent. Massively Literally, easy. Like, yeah. Pretty much every barista's like, you know, an well, actor. Like, everyone's <laughs> everyone in Los Angeles has got like a dual purpose for life. Yeah. They're an actor by day and they're making your soup at night. Mm. But it's um, it's quite a fascinating place. There is no, I don't think there's no person really there especially in Hollywood where we were staying that's not connected mm-hmm. in some way or fashion to the industry on, on the fringe or deep inside the system so on to the main content really of the first episode had an option of going through a bit of the uh, movie making trivia talking to you guys about where we kind of professionally began especially with our partnership with Amazon Prime, with Kinfall and Star, and just going through, you know, why we made the film, how we made the film, etc., etc. But, you know, that that's really, I reckon that's for a later episode where people start asking questions um, about the film, or even, you know, you'll find a lot of trivia online anyway. So, a better story is kind of like what happened um, around filming, all of the kind of crazy memories that we've got making that film because there was so much stuff happening almost fateful stuff really happening around the film itself and we've never really had an opportunity to talk about that so that's kind of what we're going to deal with in episode one and set you guys up for life in LA and then finishing with pretty much you know the return to uh, the mundane (laughs) country village life where Instead of the hustle and bustle of um, Los Angeles and Hong Kong, we're, we're now back to um, the, the rather subdued, sheep-infused fields of, of England, you know, which is a hell of a different setup and experience to live. So, yeah, going, going to the uh, absolute start of the story then, uh, the hunt for the Hanya mask is one of the first things that I want to talk about. The brief akin was to try and be as authentic as we could with costumes and characters, etc. And one thing that I was adamant about, like almost supremely Virgo perfectionist about, was um, getting a Hanya mask. For those of you that don't know what a Hanya mask is, it's a theatrical mask in North Theatre in Japan, which 
symbolizes a woman scorned and it's 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 a very famous symbol actually in a lot of japanese anime uh drama etc it's been used loads and loads and loads and i really wanted to, to try and set it up for the the main bad guy to have this mask so we hit the online spread ebay was good for so much and then most things were coming straight from Japan, though. Most things were coming straight from Japan. They were too antique or too uh, miniaturized. A lot of this stuff was stuff that you hang on a door or wall, but not wear. And we also were looking at a warehouse, a prop warehouse, mm -hmm. where Lisa drove us down. I, I forget where. I feel like it was Burbank area. It might have been North Hollywood. I, I don't know. can't really recall where it was. No. <laughs> it's a long time ago. But when we arrived at this warehouse, it was it was kind of like a library of props. It was absolutely vast. It was big. Everything was there. Everything you can even think of was there, from military flat jackets to like all kinds of an arsenal. Mm. Um, but no, everything really, except <laughs> yeah, everything except anything that was organically Asian. It was yeah. a lot of um, I don't know American Americanized Asian stuff. Uh, but nothing truly authentic, nothing, and we're quite, I mean, we're quite stringent with this stuff, living in Asia ourselves, we need everything to be authentic, very authentic, <laughs> almost only so, so it was uh, a bit of a no-go, and we ended up going to a thrift store, we found, we located a Japanese thrift store that definitely was in North Hollywood, and from that place, we found a couple of masks, not the Hanya mask, per se, but we saw a lot of stuff that was ex-used, like literally imported from Japan, directly used in theatre in Japan. And we actually got one of those for the sequel, didn't we? Mm -hmm. um, which you will see when we approach Kin 2 in the near future. But we could not find this honey mask. Mm. And we went right back to uh, Little Tokyo. I had to think of what it was called, getting confused. It's the age. It's, it's my age, everyone. Um, <laughs> and we went back there and we inquired about honey masks and the woman behind the counter, who I think was having a phone conversation in Japanese with someone in Japan at the time, said, yeah, you're, you're, you'll never find one. Um, the only thing we've got are these plastic kind of kiddie uh, fancy dress stuff. Mm -hmm. And we were like, yeah, that's not going to cut it. So it was a long shot. It was a tourist shop. So. It was a massively long shot. So we went to Plan B, as you often do, and got a skull mask, thinking, "Wow, we can we can change the shape of this and, and turn it into <laughs> a skeletal bad guy." But it wasn't exactly what we wanted, or it didn't really work no. on the actor either. It was it looked really awkward, and skull masks are quite hard to to locate anything that's truly realistic anyway. So. We actually kept that and used that mask in Neon Days, yes. which is a short film project that we will finish in the winter months of this year. But basically, yeah, we, we were struggling. Pre-production was about like four weeks, maybe six weeks. And um, I think we were just going to Little Tokyo for some other reason. I forget. I, I think we were hunting down kimonos. Yeah, kimonos, probably. We were hunting down kimonos or anything in that region, really. But then we, we go back to the store which which we'd inquired at before. And lo and behold, the shop owner had just come back from a trip to uh, her native lands of Japan. And with her 
had uh, brought back to incredibly brilliant, exactly what we want, carved wooden hanging masks. Of which was, that. I mean, that was pretty faithful. That was really faithful. And I mean, if we hadn't gone in and asked about it, I don't think she would have, you know. Might not have even, we might have programmed her <laughs> to actually go out and buy them. She, I don't think she remembered that it was us who no, asked about it. definitely not. She was too busy engrossed in that conversation yeah. on the phone. So anyway, we get this Hanya mask and it was um, kind of like pine wood effect. It was very um, yeah, soft It was a light wood, wood yeah. And I was like, we're going to have to do something about this. So I had this ingenious idea of um, spray painting it gold was, was my, my thought. Originally, I wanted it to be silver. And then we went to Home Depot in Hollywood area, sort of like between Hollywood and Sunset, I think it is, um, on the way to Los Feliz. And we find this metallic car paint, spray paint for uh, vehicles that was gold. And I was like, man, we'll have to use that. The silver, well, silver is quite dubious because um, sometimes it's quite transparent. You need a primer. And I'm literally thinking this way because when I was a wee, we teen, back in high school, we were all about, um, it was like a Warhammer Games Workshop craze. And we all had these uh, miniatures that you have to paint yourself. And honestly, I was just thinking that when I when I thought, man, I'm going to have to change this mask, get some primer and, and, and spray paint it like the old characters that we used to paint. And that's that's my dork moment over. But I mean, it's it's really relevant, you know, in filmmaking. You, you'll acquire skills from some weird, <laughs> weird, wonderful places that you'll then apply to filmmaking. And that was one of them. So I'm out there on the balcony, terrified that we're... Uh, you know, going to paint the entire balcony of our apartment gold, which I'm sure some people won't mind too much. It mm. adds value to the place. <laughs> but <laughs> realistically, it would be a blotchy botch job and uh, definitely not real gold. So being the incredible, um, you know, secure, um, compassionate guy I am to our landlord at the time, I uh, created a shield out of a cereal box, which again is a classic, thing i used to do as a kid resourceful resourceful and at the end of it we had a mask that looked a million dollars quite literally i I mean if it was real gold it probably would be a million (laughs) dollars eh? (laughs) if only so the story of the hanya mask is a kind of insight into the crazy um research and development that we've done for the film you know a lot of it is to get that authentic asian experience and um vilify um with the villains especially you want to go cultural and I'm a personal believer that the Japanese horror films of recent years outweigh anything else from outside the world. They are seriously creepy and weird and strange and very cerebral. I don't do horror films. You don't do horror films. No. Well, there you go. But anyway, so we had an authentic villain. True to the kind of uh, mythology we were aiming for, we got that Hanya mask. And that was just the beginning of everything. This was all the pre-production phase. We then, um, once our team was all assembled, we had one of the one of the craziest days was actually the the beginning shoot, where we had I feel like it was the brief was some like fifteen pages of script, if not more, mm. and a window of about three hours <laughs> at night when everyone was available to cover it and to do multiple camera setups, and at the time. I was working with this guy um, who who became our pretty much go-to crew member 
he would never held a boom mic in his life before so he was nervous as hell at that point and by the end of the day he was 100% professional brilliant genius great at his job that was a funny time because it was a living location so man I just I, I just think by setting it up if you think about the um, the day itself it's quite amazing how we got through the even just the opening of that is <laughs> crazy from setting up the props outside to actually shooting the whole thing. I think the most amazing thing about the first day of shooting was the fact that we found our actor the night before. Oh, Less yeah, than that's, 24 that's, hours see, before See, this is a random thing because, you know, we're, we're looking, literally looking at the script two days before shooting. And I'm processing this knowing that I've got to be the DOP of the project, at least to launch it. The idea was either I'm going to half my work as a cameraman and find another DOP to sort of share the brunt, brunt load of the work. Or I have the opportunity of splitting my role in half and try and do something quite phenomenal with it, you know. And pretty much on that decision, we um, started inquiring around. We need another British person. Originally, they were going to look more or less like myself. And then we, uh, we got pushed towards Ash, Ash Nair. Not only is an extraordinarily talented, amazingly talented guy, but he's also just a hell of a lot of laughs. Mm. And we literally threw this at him the night before saying like, well, he was kind of like, oh yeah, good. I've got a week to prepare. And we're like, no, 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 no. no. See you tomorrow. Starts, starts tomorrow and it's going to be a night shoot and uh, you'll, you'll never sleep and life is going to be pretty grim. For he was really week. up for it. His but enthusiasm was, and energy was great. Well, that's it. And, and God bless you, Ash, if you're listening right now, you're in New York. And you're uh, about to dominate Broadway, or wherever else you go, uh, Harlem, I don't know, <laughs> House Kitchen. You're going to be Daredevil for real. But Ash, if you're listening, hopefully you are. Man, you, you're an awesome dude. And you came in and you saved our life and it was awesome. Thank you very much, dude. And, you know, like, it's a funny, it's, it's kind of a funny thing because even with Ash, like, I remember... Um, we were getting round to um, the late night shooting at Hollywood Hills and he'd always wanted the beanie, kind of style beanie that I was wearing throughout production and he's like, oh, I've always wanted a beanie like that and I'm like, yeah, have it mate, that's your payment for the film. So we bribed him with a beanie, that's, that's how easy it is. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I gave him my brown beanie because I was like, that looks better than you anyway mate. Aww. So yeah, we basically cross-dressed him each of his clothes that's that's what we were doing on the set so uh he got to go and my beanie god bless him better home i think and uh yeah basically a story of the scene if if one of the memories that i like a lot was when uh towards um sort of end of the film when we were hiring out that boat and we were all on that boat and uh it was kind of like that what, what's that American show? Um, Little House on the Prairie, where everyone says goodnight to each other. <laughs> goodnight, right. Tiny Tim. Goodnight, Billy Bob. I don't know. Something like that. Um, <laughs> I know, I know goodnight, Moon. <laughs> I'm really bad at this. I just know it was, it was the end of every show. That Little House on the Prairie, I'm fairly certain it was that. When I was a kid, we watched this on Channel 4 or something. I think I read the book, so um, I don't know about that. I don't know if there is a book. What? Um, I have no idea. It was just a, it's an American drama series, like a soap opera but set in kind of like rural um, America back in the Wild West, I believe. 
But anyway, like it was a closeout. We're all we're all uh, sort of in this. Um, we rented a yacht, and we had everyone staying um, over the 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 main cast. It was predominantly Japanese guys at this time. It was Yuto, Yusuke, our makeup artist. Yusuke, Yuto plays Echo. Wen and I, and uh, who else was there? I think Alex was there. Alex was there, and and we decided all to stay in the boat because we had it for twenty four hours as a location. And just as we're about to fall asleep from the front of the boat, Yusuke sits up and smacks his head on the top, rocks the boat literally. <laughs> which was just obscene um and he didn't knock himself out he actually he actually did it a couple of times after that so i think he was right under the uh, bow of the boat or something like pretty much like no headroom whatsoever yeah well the space was a kind of small yeah it was a tiny cabin um but it was an amazing journey that was an awesome adventure um it's just, it was a funny thing because using live location in certain cases, you never know what you're going to get. And with the boat, it was a case of almost everyone's dream come true. And it was one of the last things we actually filmed because we filmed the film as chronological as we could. And so it's one of the last scenes and it was one of the last things we filmed. And, you know, it was, it was kind of like everyone got to be a pirate for a, <laughs> for a day. It was awesome. The ultimate breakdown of one of the best days on the shoot, which could have gone either way because it was one of the most harrowing parts of the story, which was uh, when the uh, the Reaper guys are going in after after Lisa, and it's the introduction of Dante, played by the excellent and madly talented Richley. Um, mm-hmm. Big props to your brother. And it was a day where, you know, for good... I want to say, again, six to eight hours, Lisa was meant to be bullied by people all day. Yeah, it was was a hard sort of emotional scene. Really tough. And in the nature of this kind of filmmaking, you kind of really want to get natural reactions. So we are pushing her. A lot of it became fairly physical. A lot of it um, was like we were bullying her. There was also a split in the group where, you know, a lot of the, uh, the team was outside the apartment and a lot of the team was inside the apartment. But man, that was one of the most fun days on the shoot. Yeah, it was weird. Like when we were rolling, the atmosphere was just so tense, which is perfect for you know what what we wanted. And it was then, it was super intense. And then after cut, everyone was like, yeah. It was just. <laughs> I think everyone was the most happiest mm. in that day. Everyone was bubbling around and bouncy and really silly and stuff. And you know, you push go on the camera, and everyone suddenly steps into this intense, dark, horrific <laughs> sort of mindset. Which was, you know, it was, it was quite cool. And mm-hmm. um, you, you kind of reflect on these things. It was, uh, it was a heavy duty day for Lisa. She had a lot to do that day. But when you, when you see all of that, it's, it's really amazing, I think. The thing that you can reflect on, especially on the, the, the most dramatic scenes of film, is that I feel like a lot of people are the most excited about getting to the darkest spots. Mm-hmm. And then around it, everyone is just literally in comedy mode because we had pranks and people being stupid and whatever, you know. We were all dancing outside the apartment when that was going on inside, you know, when re- rehearsals were going on and stuff. So, yeah, it was, it's kind of funny how usually the most intense day of filming becomes the most fun. And that was definitely one of the most fun days on the shoot. You have any other memories mm. to share? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go on. Um, 
I think it was probably one of your favorite days of filming, and it was the time lapse in Malibu, because it was just relaxing and beautiful. And I mean, to actually do a time lapse in real time is kind of surreal. I think. Well, it was just to set this up. We we had pushed and pushed and pushed this time lapse, and and we. Because we were closing up on the uh, actual stay in, in Los Angeles, um, we had to go back to Hong Kong. Literally the day after we we, we found the time to do this time lapse, mm -hmm. we, we kept pushing it. It was availability. We needed we needed to get a coastal shot, so we had to go to um, sort of that midpoint between Santa Monica and, and Malibu on the PCH, and there's this nice stretch of like an endless beach really on that on that spot. So we dragged our makeup artist Yusuke and we knew that you kind of get that whole reflective period because we'd, we'd done all of the film at this point mm -hmm. except for this one shot and we sat there probably two hours or so before sunset, gone to the, the local Galsons on, on the road, the, <laughs> the market there, grabbed some supplies and stuff and we literally had the best job ever of just sitting by the beach mm -hmm. watching the sun go down for yeah. the whole time, you know. It was a very long sunset. It was a crazy long sunset. <laughs> Possibly LA's longest sunset ever. I mean, on that day, particular day, it was crazy long. And, you know, essentially it was like the perfect end off. You're there in nostalgia reflecting on everything. We're all able to talk because sound doesn't matter on a shot like yeah. this. And uh, it was a great day to be with Yusuke because we really, you know, Yusuke is our makeup artist, but he's also our... our adopted family now isn't he mm -hmm. so we're all there reflecting on the film and having a good laugh and a good time it's a hard job i think that was actually possibly the most glamorous day of filming that was the one which really was a pleasure yeah. <laughs> just for us to do because the 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 uh juxtaposition uh, of that time lapse is another time lapse which we did from the balcony yes. which was just Getting a camera set up oh, and leaving it. Oh, that was terrible. But man, we must have done that thing three hundred times. There was some. There must have been something wrong with the little camera, like um, because it was going off battery. It wasn't long enough for the time yeah, lapse I no, wanted it, for it, the first, you know, the first go. So I was like, okay, let's plug it in. And then for some reason, I think it has like a sleep mode. And then the second time it didn't work. Oh, it yeah. was so frustrating. Which you know, this is the trial and error of of time lapse filming. But yeah, we had infinite problems with the balcony, but the sunset one, we should have had more problems with the sunset one, mm. considering that we had one chance to do it, but yeah. we had no problems. It was And it was on this little, little tripod that really wasn't that steady. <laughs> very, like... very expensive camera on a yeah. tripod facing, yeah, facing the sky. With Everything the sun and wrong. everything. But it is perfect. And actually, <laughs> the thing is like, you know, literally the day the day after we shot that we were leaving to go back to Hong Kong and, and it's a it's a great memory that I have of Alex who would Alex was basically living with us throughout the shoot as an actor because he, he yeah he, he had to travel far he was coming in from West Covina and he had to stay with us so he was kind of like our uh, foster kid for the, <laughs> for the shoot and I remember that last day we literally had to drop Everything that we couldn't take back with us, a ton oh, of props, yeah. a load of equipment. We were just totally 
obviously overweight. Yeah, we're super, yeah, taking and, everything know. back that we'd got. Um, we had to prioritize the stuff that we needed to archive, the stuff that we needed to bring back. But we gave him, it was almost like we just had our lunch. He, he literally was staying till our last minute. We just locked up, handed the keys back. We got a lift again with Yusuke. I think it was, he took us to the airport. And I remember just seeing Alex packed up. Oh, <laughs> like yeah. barely able to move with a bunch of stuff and we just had to wave him goodbye man and you know like it was i made a bag using the the blanket that yeah. i gave him because yeah. i really wanted to keep the blanket but it was just too thick and too heavy to bring back well it's, it's too i hope you're fun. taking care of it alex yeah Alex, if you're listening, you, you're a one-man uh, film crew of all that stuff, and you've basically got one of the best blankets on earth, Win, Win would say. So take care of all of that and put it to good use, pal. But yeah, <laughs> that was just, it was kind of like the, the sunset to that. I mean, the sunset was literally, I, I had two days like that. We were doing pickup shots in uh, Koreatown, and I remember running around the top of the mole there, which, again, foreshadowed the fact that, uh, less than a year later we had the premiere in that premises mm-hmm. and so little did we know at the time but we had to do all of these uh pickup shops uh some of which we didn't actually use in the film but some of it's like archived um but we just run- i was running around the top of this mall um and taking all these shots and stuff and and, and that, that was the fun stuff believe it or not because it's sort of um you got free reign carte blanche and it's it's a very fascinating place actually career there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of visuals if you ever get to go to la try and check it out it's massive stretch it's kind of the old downtown area very historical uh in certain areas but it's it's also a great place it kind of um sort of very unusual uh both that and little Tokyo is quite an unusual place but if you do get to um check them out you should go using that in the film doing the pickups there that was the tranquility that you sort of feel when you you're by the sunset set because you've got no time constraints you got free reign to just get visuals and there's no pressure which is nice you don't have to leave at any particular time you know? i think uh it was also a sense of accomplishment by that point yeah the main of the film being done and going out running around getting scene shots is great one thing i wanted to analyze actually whilst we're talking about k-town because my mind draws back to it is the day that we did that um the car sequence so the interior car sequence driving through Koreatown and how we had to set that up mm-hmm. <laughs> because we had this immense gadget like um it's kind of like a gopro style thing and we we're using our was it an ipod at the time i don't even think we didn't have an iphone or anything like that so i think it was actually my ipod that we were using for the camera yeah, it was like, yeah, wirelessly connected or something. And this was, yeah, this was a situation where the interior of the car, I had to be held down in the back of the car filming it. And then we did one with a fixed camera driving through a stretch of road, just pretty much a block on a loop. And I remember the the Koreatown one set us up for doing the PCH one later, which was a nightmare. Do you remember that? Yeah. Because uh, you guys dropped me off in the middle of nowhere. I'm just walking around a mountain town while you're doing the whole shoot in a car. And you had to sit in, didn't you? You, you couldn't, because you couldn't see any um, 
footage or whatever out of range outside of the vehicle you had to sit in i was doing sound yeah i was like (laughs) curled up uh, uh, like under the seat almost and uh, yeah and because we were using the go the gopro again i had to be out of shot but doing sound and and this is the kind of thing where if you set it up right you had tony in the back he's got to be unconscious he's literally in the one of the highest days of filming it was Mm -hmm. super hot yeah now I was having to loop on a PCH, which if any of you know Los Angeles or ever get to go there, if you're on the uh, Pacific Coast Highway, um, it's one of the busiest roads. And there's always traffic. Always traffic. It's a, it's kind of like a motorway, really, like a freeway. Mm-hmm. And um, man, like we had to just loop and loop and loop. And I think you left me. I was, in, <laughs> I was just in this crazy... Leave the director yeah, behind. I'm in this crazy Rough. barren place by a seafood restaurant staring at the menu for what seemed like eight hours. <laughs> it must have been like two or something, but even like half an hour is too long in this place. So everyone around this area... We didn't loop. We went down and then yeah. we went back up towards oh, right, you. But right, right. because of the traffic, it took yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. longer. It's literally bumper to bumper, you know. So that was awesome. And interesting. Wind, wind's really good, and this is one of her many skills, which is really good at hiding in nuts and crannies. And yeah, we tend to put her in in wardrobes to get high shots and things like this. So uh, she's very multi skilled. It's awesome to have your own uh, pet Winifred for any project. You should all do it. Thanks. It's very good. You'd be an awesome escape artist, or <laughs> or very good for a bank robbery, like in Ocean's Eleven. You're that guy that can fit into the crazy, weird, small places. I tried to fit in a duffel bag once, except that after it was zipped up, then I realized that I was a bit claustrophobic. Yeah. (laughs) Well, from the outset, that's just a kind of stupid thing to do, eh? Well, it was a very big duffel bag, to be fair. And I wanted to prove that it was big, but I guess it's kind of reverse logic. And also... uh... You should never be carried to another country in that fashion. <laughs> Even if you do fit in. I wasn't being smuggled. The x-ray exposes you. So there you go. But basically, like, um, yeah, the, the car shots were great. The style on that, we had... Um, it's a defined look. We established all this before filming, so it was all a plan. And a lot of it was experimental to see if you can actually get away with this stuff. And we, we often did more than we didn't, which was great. It's kind of like having all of these secret tools for the job. And I feel like one one more thing to analyze was there's a scene where originally um, we had a location which was actually very close to the CBS studio that uh, James Corden actually works at now on a late, 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 late show. I think there's far too many lates, but it's way later than earlier. Okay. And basically, by the CBS studio, there was this comedy store. Kind of like a really tiny um, independent theatre that they had. And we'd seen the pictures online. And it was all set up with, like, yin-yangs on the floor and and almost Asian mindset, you know, as an interior. And we needed um, a location to to house the Reaper base, the the gangsters of the storyline. And this was one of the first things that came up for hire. And on the picture, it looked pretty decent. Like it was, um, it it was passable, I would say. But when we actually turned up to check this place out, it was really tiny. It was like one of these things that, on a photograph, looks like it's pretty much Wembley Stadium. And by the time you get there, it's a cupboard. 
And there were so many things that the whole scene needed to have a bit of action in it. There was a, a bit of a fight sequence going on. And man, like, I just remember looking at it and thinking, we'll break that, we'll smash that, that'll be destroyed. That guy's head will go through that. And you obviously can't do that. I mean, you want to do that because that would be fantastic as far as the uh, aesthetic of filming. But you can't do that, number one, because you'll kill half your cast. And number two, because you'll be sued by the company that owns the property. And yeah. So to avoid that, I suggested we need a better location. And we, we had to literally, I think the pending on the schedule is we had to change location so swiftly. It was, again, another one of these... You can't really do anything, like when you're on a production timeline, you can't really do anything to change the the day everyone's um, available on. So you have to kind of do the extra work and find a location. And what was amazing is we ended up, and this is, this is the difference between Hollywood and the UK. So we actually ended up using a VIP room in a bowling alley. Like in uh, Tempin Bowling Alley, like where in the UK you had Mega Bowl, which was a thing. And the standard in Europe is that kind of format where it's like, um, you know, a, a 10 lane, 15 lane system. This place had its own VIP chamber, which was all curtained off. Yeah. Right. And so it was perfect. Massive place, stuff that we could get away with. There was an infinite room there. It was great. And um I think at the time Ash worked for the, the, the company mm -hmm. as well, which was awesome. So he kept popping in and out and getting involved and stuff, which was great. And we had a time limit because this, again, something that's different about this bowling alley is it kind of kicks in sort of mid-afternoon up until quite early at night because at night time it becomes a kind of... Club or something. Like, yeah, like a nightclub yeah. bowling alley, yeah. which I always think is a bad combination, like <laughs> whiskey and bowling. Not, not not a good combo, in my opinion. A lot of people throw the ball the wrong way down the alley. Um, but that's the intriguing thing, and it's right in the centre. It's like Hollywood Highlands, so it's literally connected to one of the, you know, where the, the, the same building complex as the Oscars. <laughs> so it's just right on our doorstep where we're living. And this VIP room, we were like, we were pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And we, we knew that at a certain time, you know, we're going to lose all sound because the bowling's going to start. So we had a, a, a kind of half day schedule. And so in typical independent movie making magic, I had to train our guys to do this fight sequence within 20 minutes, <laughs> running around doing this stuff, all the action. And you know, you look at it now, it's absolutely amazing. Like, everyone was really determined to pull it off. Mm -hmm. And I remember the last take, mm -hmm. halfway through it, you suddenly hear the uh, the clattering of Skittles yep. and the, the alley The timing opened. was perfect. And it was literally, we hit that last take, cut, cut the camera, and then suddenly everyone's bowling. And I remember, and I was blown away, the thing that curtained this area off with these red curtains, it started to open up. And it's got its own private alley. Yeah, it had like two two or three alleys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe four. Yeah, and I, I was just like blown away because it had completely fooled me that it was just, you know, like maybe a window. A separate breathing. room. Yeah, or something. But that really stunned me. So when I opened that window up, I was like, man. Like if we'd have gone 10 minutes over, we'd have looked like a proper donut group. Like you would have seen this thing open up and we're just like beating the hell out of each other in a small little, you know, section of this alleyway. Anyway, it was, it was fun things like that. We're uh, thinking on the fly and and having having like uh, kind of like almost zen like changes that happen last minute. 
whether it be a few of the casting options as well. Like um, I, I met one of them was John John Charis, who um, we met <laughs> we met with a group of people, and when he turned up, he had the biggest dog I think I've ever seen in my life. He had the craziest hair I've ever seen. Yeah, and originally like the character that he ends up playing Blake wasn't even in the script. Mm -hmm. It was, he was actually coming in for the role of, I think it was Maxi. And when I saw this guy, my instant feeling was like, either this guy is deliberately screwing my brain as a director, because if you ever turn up at an audition, basically look like you've been electrocuted and dragging a tiger around with you. Cause this dog was tiger sized. <laughs> something ain't right with you but he was such a charismatic dude when you start talking to him something clicked in my head and I was like he's there's more to this dude than meets the eye I'm gonna have to think about this and so in in true style of when you actually do a film if, if there's any one bit of advice I can give anyone be open to changes because when you meet a mm -hmm. real life character and you you can put him into the framework write a scene even if that scene becomes a B-roll on a, on a DVD or something, write the scene, shoot the scene, because these characters are, are, are mad in life. And Johnny, honestly, man, like the first day, zaniest, most eccentric dude I've ever seen, ever met. When we actually got him onto filming, um, and I think Wynn was a nervous wreck before it, because he was like, what's he going to do? I'm not sure what this guy's going to bring to the, the I think story. I think the thing was, you know, he's a bit unpredictable. <laughs> From you know, from my perspective at yeah, the time, first impressions, you know, definitely. Like I don't know what he's capable yeah, yeah. of, and that's you know, it could be a good thing and it could be very scary. But this is why Johnny's become one of my favorite people we work with. Um, I love everyone that we work with, but he sort of rings into my mind as a really like a pleasant surprise. I would say mm. because when he turned up on set, when we when we actually were filming his scene in Hollywood Hills at like the location up there. He turned up with like 20 suits, prepared to do a, a impromptu wardrobe testing, super pro, completely toned down. He actually reminds me of like um, a Robert Downey or a young Pacino, yeah, like visual. Yeah. And he was completely different guy, he, like seemed completely normal, completely sane, very much, <laughs> you know, really considerate, immensely... Um, you kind of aware, you know, like aware that we needed help with. Yeah. He just bought everything. And, and the actual seat that we actually chose, he said he'd literally just got that day for yeah. this gig. Yeah. And honestly, I, I, I kind of treasure that because it was worth taking a plunge. You know what I mean? Like you see something in someone and you're like, even if this guy turns out to be the maddest, craziest dude on the planet, I have to film this guy. There's this instinct, you know? And he turned out to be one of the most talented guys I've ever met, you know. Mm -hmm. And to his um, kudos as well, I, I actually saw something that he did on YouTube, uh, Cat on the Hot Tin Roof. And I think he was playing a role of Brick. And man, he just blew that thing out of the park. And so there's a serious, serious talent in that guy. Whether he knows it or not, and hopefully Johnny, you're listening to this. And uh, he's a fellow Liverpool supporter, so props. But yeah, like he was great and he always thought about, he really thought about the aesthetics. It wasn't just the character, he was thinking about how he should dress a scene, like you'll get to the scene where they wake up in the morning in that apartment, it's like after the drug-infused party of the night before, it's that scene in the film. And he, it was his idea to bring almost half of his 
you know, stuff from home with him, like things that he would have in his bedroom, like kind of paraphernalia that's sort of like very rock and roll, even his Liverpool shirt, which is a subtle nod to our in-common football team, you know. And I just thought things like that were an amazing touch. He did actually, because he knew there was going to be an action part in that, he, he kind of misread or misinterpreted the, the concept and started dressing like the actual attire he's wearing is almost Streets of Rage, like the video game, street punk stuff. And he had like a um, telescopic nightstick and all of this stuff that he's carrying, you know. And I love that about him because you have to watch that scene carefully. But when you see it, you'll see how eccentric the lad is. And it's it's an amazing thing. And, you know, I have to kind of give a nod to that because uh, one of the most beautiful experiences in this film was what people brought to the characters. Another good example of exactly that was Mark. Mm. Mark, by day, is a yoga instructor, one of the most passive, amazingly loving, uh, caring, brilliant guys I've ever met as well. We are, we, I've got to give you this because I'm going to say loving, great, you know, I'm a fan of this guy, that guy. There's no favoritism. I actually love all of our cast equally. They're like family. But Mark, man, like when I met him for the audition, you've got a very very uh i wouldn't say typical californian but very much that kind of zen mind um hippie vibe. yeah hippie kind of peace world traveler very educated mm. very respectful immensely polite guy and the character's like this total you know <laughs> total opposite and you know we're giving mark this and i'm like man because i had a preconception of the character as a writer and um, we go back from that interview and it must be an hour or so and we're, we're going over a few rushes because we're in filming at the time and he phones me up and he's like so I've got this idea for the role and I'm going to go this and this and this with it and kind of bring out the French and, and do all of this and this is exactly how I'd imagined the character written never had to prompt him never had to say anything I'm just laughing on the side of the phone because Mark's in character on the other side of the phone talking me through his concept as you know this character and honestly again you bring you bring mark into the fold with johnny in the limo scene and it's it's stuff like that that's you literally just let him work and that's the beautiful thing when you when you have committed casts that really look into the script and really bring stuff to the top you know man that limo scene was the creepiest day of my life man me I, poor will on the sound was like <laughs> just all creeped out in the back of that limo <laughs> which is a testament to the atmosphere they created and just those guys are so great and and with mark it was awesome because mark being this such this this just complete parallel opposite of the character he plays when you get him to be mischievous and you get him to kind of create sort of mischief he was all over it man and he, he just shone so it, it it's awesome to to see that evolution in these guys from all the good stuff, do you remember the incredible uh, last thing we'll analyse, really? Do you remember that in, insane time we had uh, doing the pulse spine shoot? Mm-hmm. Because just to set this up, um, we're out in a national park to film this. You know, we're exposed to the elements. It was completely outside, external shoot. And the, the narrative was one of the hardest dialogue sections in the film. Mm -hmm. and Eugene was great um, through the role but it was a heavy day and we were losing light at one point and 
you know, the last sort of sequence, you can actually see the gradient of the light disappear, which worked perfectly in balance with the shot itself. So you get that shadow effect that was happening in real time that wasn't added. We also had intermittent joggers. Oh man, we had, we had people with their dogs because it was a national park. Yeah. So like behind us, it was a whole different <laughs> world behind us. We had to make this place look isolated behind us. People playing volleyball and God knows what else. You know, running around. This is supposed to be otherworldly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, it, it was kind of cool. And we, we got through that. We, it was a brutal day shoot. And then by the time we get back to the cars, Lisa, whose car throughout the film had been dying almost to the point of death at this point, decides to completely break down. So the whole, the whole team rallies behind behind poor Lisa in the car and we're like all pushing this down like a hill, you know, for quite a while thinking, God, I hope this car can get you home. Like, So yeah, man, it was, it was one of those days where I'd say nothing particularly went wrong, really. It just, it was just a really hardcore day filming and then when lisa's car broke down that was kind of the uh icing on the cake a lot of the memories of kin are you know there's a lot more obviously and possibly in the future we'll go back to it especially like please if you if you guys get to watch the film watch um, the film yeah, <laughs> we're pushing promotion but if you get to watch the film feel free to ask us questions about it and of course we'll answer them at any given date down the road um, but then, yeah, so after all of that madness, we came back to the UK um, where life gets immensely uh, slower. I think that's the best way of saying it. Mm. Slower, more real, less hustle and bustle. And we're in the process. I think the major difference that you'll have between life in, in Hollywood or even Hong Kong is that in Hollywood and Hong Kong, stories present themselves to you every day. You'll walk down the street, be staggered by how many things you're seeing, and it will give you an instant idea of what you can do as a project, tell a story narrative. The scenery is exotic. Everything's larger than life in these places. And when you come back to a grass field in the middle of nowhere, United Kingdom. It's pretty. Of course, it's beautiful. Um, when, you're, when you're in a place where... Pretty much every shop, restaurant, everything is shut by, I don't know, the time I'm waking up, which is around 11, 11 o'clock in the <laughs> night time. Um, I'm on vampire time mostly. You'll look at the, the world a bit differently. And so just to give you guys a little hint of what's to come, I think when you ever tackle reality in Los Angeles, the reality of Los Angeles is mad at default. When you're dealing with reality in Hong Kong, the reality in Hong Kong is busy, vibrant, multicultured, you know, um, just world class, I would say, because it's a hub, international hub, a super city. But when you come back to England, reality is grass and field with sheep quite often. So you have to kind of establish a reality. And that's a hint. Mm -hmm. You have to create your own reality here. Mm. Bouncing castles and candy floss. That's what you have to do. If you, if you give any field in the UK a bouncing castle and candy floss, it's infinitely better. And on that note, <laughs> we'll leave you with that. Let's wrap. Um, yeah, so thanks for listening. This has been a uh, hell of a rant. I actually refer to podcasts as viral rants. I think it's more truthful. And so this has been the first viral rant. And I'd like to say we'll be back 
same time, same place next week. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. I think that's the world code of what you think, man. Yep. Yeah? We're good. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash male demon, M-A-I-L-D-E-M-O-N, or on Twitter, our handle is Project FIA. And that's where you can drop us questions, comments, be nice, please. Or if you're nasty, be creative. There's nothing worse than an uncreative troll. You have to be very creative to be my troll, otherwise I'll, I'll actually critique your critique. Anyway, okay, that that's said, all. We'll speak to you next time. Thanks for listening, folks. See Bye. you later. Bye.